Hey, this is Kyle. I'm Dave. I'm Brad. And this is the So What podcast from Theology in the Middle. We're in our third installment of Have You Ever Wondered? And today we're asking the question, what is the difference between God's wrath and his discipline? And I get that question a lot from believers because they seem to misapply the categories. And I have a feeling in your ministries, you also have experienced those things. And so I think in order to answer it, we kind of have to move systematically through this. And so first, my question to you guys is, if God is love, then why does God have wrath to begin with? What is wrath? Like those two are, they have nothing to do with each other? I'm saying, uh, does a loving person have wrath? I don't imagine Mr. Rogers throwing things at a wall or something. That's a good point. I mean, we don't we we didn't see him after the cameras turned off, though. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I I think you know the to answer that question, we have to qualify what God's love is, and um, I think it is his his characteristic uh, goodness towards his creation, the benevolence that overflows from his character. But at the same time, uh, you know, we also affirm that God has an intended goal for creation. And, uh, you know, he created our world to be good. And um, it's broken now because of our sin. And so being the the good and loving God that he is, um, he has to respond to that disobedience, not just uh, like a pushover parent, but with the uh, justice and uh, the wrath that you'd expect from a holy God. So I think it has to do with our our disobedience is, is where God's wrath comes from. Well, can I, so so backing up a bit, can I ask this question? Is is wrath a part of like who God is? So the the theological way to ask it is is wrath an attribute of God? Uh, no, it is, is not. If, if if no, why not? No, uh, he is not wrath. He shows wrath, and wrath is an outpouring of his holiness and his justice. Yeah. So, so wrath is wrath is not part of who God is, but it's a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where you're or getting a at, response. Brad, right? Yeah, or I'd a say it's a response. Yeah. It's a response to human sinfulness as an expression of his justice and holiness. Brad, when you were kind of pointing with an end, he has a telos in mind. Yeah, I think if you look at Genesis 1, 2, 3, where God creates the world and prepares a place for people, he puts Adam in the garden and he gives him a command. You know, here you are, work it and keep it, and you're allowed to eat from any tree in the garden you'd like, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from the tree, uh, he banished them from the garden as an expression of his wrath, you know, uh, the disobedience, the sinfulness of man uh, elicited that response. He's, he's angry and, uh, and brokenhearted and, and wrathful, and so he responds with judgment on Adam and Eve. And um, we were talking before we started recording, I mean, I think this is the pattern that follows through the rest of Scripture. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve sin and disobey, and so they're banished from the garden, uh, later on in Genesis, we get to the sinfulness of the whole world, not just the first two people, but their sinfulness uh, proliferates as humanity uh, expands over the face of the earth, and, and it comes to a head. And, um, you know, the Scripture is pretty blunt with how it says it. I mean, it, that God regretted creating mankind, and so he came down and, you know, called Noah to build the ark, but but he judged the world and uh, and wiped out all humanity, uh, all the living creatures except for the two that made it through Noah's ark, um, and on and on and on. Israel disobeys God in the promised land, and he exiles them. And uh, I think that's the, the pattern, is that 
human beings, because they're created by God, owe to him a life of wholehearted obedience and worship. When we depart from that, we rightfully experience his wrath, his justice, uh, and, uh, and his judgment on our sin. So if, so wrath's not an attribute of God, like what, what are the attributes of God that wrath is, is, is coming from? You know what I mean? So we, we've been describing kind of uh, examples of, of God's wraths going from Genesis, well, staying in Genesis, but from the garden to the, to the uh, tower. And then all throughout Scripture, really all the way to Revelation, wrath's talked about um, from beginning to end. Um, but but why, why, why wrath? So what is it about who God is in his nature that causes wrath when uh, he is shown sin or rebellion? It's his holiness, right? I mean, uh, I think the, the, where this comes together pretty good is in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is in the, in the temple, and he has this miraculous vision, you know, of God seated on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. The angels are there, and they say, holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah do but fall on the ground? Because he knows he's an unclean man of an unclean people with unclean lips. He knows that the only right response from God, the expected response from a God that holy, is uh, R.C. Sproul used to talk about annihilation. You know, he's obliterated by the holiness of God. I mean, that's the only expectation we should have when we encounter a holy God uh, is his judgment. Uh, you know, so I think it's the expression of his holiness, that a, a holy God cannot uh, be in the presence of sin. It's an affront to his holiness and being just, which is an attribute of God, then I think he responds to sin with justice. Sin deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death. So um, I think it's the, the holiness and justice of God. Can I chime in? I mean, Brett, I think first you started with holiness, and I think that's right. And then you tied it to justice, and I think that's right. And then I think we would all affirm that God is a simple being. He's not a composite. He's not made up of parts. He doesn't act from one attribute and not the other, that all that God does is one act. And so we could not only tie his holiness and his justice, but he also does it in love. Because yeah. the threat of punishment sometimes turns us around. I mean, Rahab's response when she hears of the God of Israel who's destroying the cities, she says, my heart melted like a candle wax when I heard of your God. And she repents that there's also love tied into it, that there's mercy, that God punishes the evildoer because he's looking out for the least of these and the most helpless, mm-hmm. that all of God's attributes are involved in all that God does in the same way that all persons of the Trinity act in all that God does. It's not only inseparable operations, but it's inseparable attributes because we serve a simple God. And so uh, we would say that why, what attribute is responding when we get wrath? Well, the answer is myriad, you know, Mm -hmm. Kyle. Yeah, that's good. No, no, I don't want to disagree. Uh, this is this is where I, I kind of wanted to go. When, when we think about God's wrath, um, kind of the first thing that pops up in everybody's mind is holiness. And the last thing in people's mind is probably love, because wrath seems like the opposite of love. But when it's coming from God, um, it's, it's a good and a right thing. That wrath is actually the opposite of his indifference. It proves uh, that when God says he is infinitely and independently holy and righteous and good and all of his attributes, uh, that he means it, uh, that his love is, is driving his wrath, that he, he cannot be indifferent to sin 
that's destroying his very good creation. Mm. Um, if, if you can imagine um, having created a, a masterful piece of work or, or a piece of art, and then somebody comes and just, I don't know, throws it out into the street and lets a car run over it. Uh, would you just stand there in indifference or would you be indignant? Would you be angry? Something that you created that was very beautiful, somebody came and destroyed. And so we would think it would be odd if that person did not react in anger. Um, wrath is not the opposite of love. Wrath is the opposite of, of indifference. Right. I like that. So for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, I mean, what's God's response ultimately to sit? sin and the wages of sin that we deserve and how does he show his love for us in the midst of a world that hates him i mean that's how john typically uses the concept of world in his gospels it's, it's right. not necessarily scope but it, it is a sinful being that hates his rule and yet he loves that world that he sent his son and how does jesus and his ministry his work his person not have anything to do with his wrath and the the judgment we deserve brad yeah i think um i the, my mind goes straight to isaiah 53 um, the suffering servant. I mean, God, God had there. There is such a thing objectively as iniquity, and trespass, and sin, um, and it does deserve punishment. But um, God, in His mercy, sent His own Son uh, to bear our iniquities in our place. You know, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That uh, sin deserves punishment. And it is punished. Um, just the grace of God is that he punishes Jesus in our place, that he suffers the penalty of our sin, and, uh, and we get to partake of the everlasting life that he came to provide. Uh, you know, Paul says that just at the right time, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, that's, that is the mercy of God displayed uh, right alongside his wrath, where wrath is poured out, but also mercy is too. So redemption, the language of redemption in the Old Testament is the, the purchasing up from slavery. And, and then yeah. God uh, pardons us. He excuses us from our sins. And then we would talk about he gives us his righteousness. And now we're counted as, but before any of that, I mean, at the center of this diamond of Christ's work is a concept we call in theology propitiation, which is a $3 word that Kyle's going to explain to you because I don't have the brain capacity to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, before, before you, you talk about what is propitiation, this is something that happens after something else, um, which is expiation. Uh, and so on the cross, um, as Luther called Christ's work, there's a great exchange that occurs. Uh, Christ for you, you for Christ. That uh, it's the death you're witnessing on the cross and the wrath being poured out on, on Christ ought to be yours, but it's not because by faith we are substituted and that has that 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 work that christ does and the wrath poured out on him um expiation has to do with removing something from us the the wrath of god is no longer poured on us because it's been diverted to the son um and that probably my favorite kind of analogy or imagery or metaphor from scripture is that uh, christ is like the ark in the flood um, that we're caught up in the ark, God shuts the door, it's not by our power, and that when judgment is taking place all around us, even though we should be succumb to the depths of a watery grave, we're not, because we're kept safe. So something's removed from us, the wrath of God, that's expiation. 
And and once we've experienced expiation, then comes propitiation. That that has to do with the object that's been expiated. That's us. And it's a because God's wrath no longer sits on us. We enjoy this this sort of restored status before God because His wrath has been satisfied in the Son. There there isn't any yeah. more wrath to pour out because it has been completely poured out. On Christ, there is no more square inch of the earth that's yet to be destroyed by the flood. It's it's all done, uh, and so we we get to enjoy this new status by propitiation of and you name it. The New Testament is filled with it: adoption as sons, co-heirs with Christ, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My favorite verse that that speaks to all that is Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, that's the exchange, that we're sinful, Christ is holy, uh, but God exchanges His holiness for our sin so that we can be righteous in His sight. Yeah, so He bore the wrath. He, he took on God's wrath. He stood between us and the wrath of God, and it's not the Father's wrath. Uh, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's wrath. God does not possess things by according to person. They all share the same attributes that Christ took it on himself like you guys have been saying and describing and then just what Romans 5 9 says since therefore we have now been justified by his blood which is what we're talking about much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God and because yeah. we are in Christ and because we're hidden in the ark and Brad was talking about uh, the ark and the flood too I mean the promise of the ark is judgment and destruction of sin and yet what we all know because of Sally Lloyd-Jones God bless her that the bow of God's wrath is pointed at himself and he takes the punishment of God on himself. And so now we're no longer under law and wrath. If we are in Christ, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're under grace. And so if we're not under wrath and we're not under, uh, and we're, not, we're now under the realm of grace, what is discipline? Why does God still discipline us for our sins? If he took on the punishment of sin for us, wh- where does discipline come in? So, if I could, if I could summarize very shortly, like the distinction between wrath and discipline, as we read it in Scripture, the purpose of wrath is judgment and destruction. The purpose of discipline is righteousness and salvation. So even though they feel the same to us at times, they have very different trajectories. They have very different ends and purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Like, you, are you are you disciplined to death? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Within an inch of my life. No, but I think you're right. I mean, uh, the Hebrews 12 passage talks about that we receive disciplines as a sign that we are legitimate sons, that God continues to have a purpose for us, a, an end goal in mind. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And while we don't have to fear his, uh, his judgment, uh, we know that in getting towards that goal— uh, he's going to have to correct us and uh, get us back on track when we wander. And uh, I think his discipline is uh, is all part of that, that, you know, we we, we still sin. I mean, even though uh, there's no condemnation, we, we still do sin. And uh, because God loves us, he corrects us in our sin. And, you know, sometimes it's nice because um, we feel it through our friends, you know, the people we go to church with or the guys we podcast with. They see something in our lives, and they correct us. They say, hey, man, uh, I noticed you said this or did that. Um, have you thought about the impact that might have on the people around you? Uh, but then other times it feels like God's got you squarely in his crosshairs, 
and uh, and he's lobbing bombs at you from heaven, and um, you're wondering what's up. And then one day you're you're reading in scripture, or maybe it just dawns on you as the Spirit speaks that uh, that God's doing that, that He's trying to correct you and trying to spare you um, more heartache um, before you you get in over your head. That He's correcting you, showing you the error of your ways, and trying to get you back on track. So if I'm understanding this correctly, you're saying that with with wrath, it's in the category of justice and it's retributive. It, it, it is. It, it's retribution for our actions. The wages of sin are death, and, and here is your punishment. Whereas discipline is in the nature and relationship of love and sonship and So as, as a child of the king. And it's, it's not retributive, it's restorative. And so it's for our good, and it's for our sanctification. It's the means by which God is making us more like Jesus in our character, in our understanding, in our wisdom. And, and so it's not our positional standing that shifts based on our obedience or disobedience. We're not more or less Christians because we still sin and we don't have to. Um, and I want to get into that. What do we do to restore this? But I was going to say it's no longer our positional standing that shifts, uh, but it, it is a, a relationship, re, relational intimacy that suffers. Would you guys agree with that? That Oh, yeah. Uh, that some, sorry, someone take over that. Well, I was going to say that the passage for me is in Jeremiah, uh, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear. And, you know, when we're living in sin, you might open the Bible, but uh, you may not get the sense that God's speaking to you through it, or you may feel that he's distant from you. Um, and that's not always the case. Sometimes God just, you know, hides himself from us for a season for whatever reason. But other times it's obvious that, uh, you know, you can't be double-minded. You can't make friends of the world and expect to still remain in close relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so um, we have to constantly be mindful of that, that sometimes, um, you know, the dryness in our relationship with the Lord may be because we're not wholeheartedly seeking Him or we're, we're, we're catering to sinful patterns and behaviors in our lives. I, I don't know, have you guys, it just dawns on me, have you guys ever experienced that, like, where you know a specific season of life where God was correcting you and disciplining you in a, in a like kind of a concrete way? Well, this is, I just had a thought. And it's dangerous to have thoughts like this, uh, like when you're recording for the world to hear. But one of the, one of the kind of debates that went on in, with theologians, and to an extent it still is going on today, is uh, whether or not God's wrath... So not to go back to the beginning, but just for a moment, God's wrath, is it active or is it passive, right? So some people would say, no, God's wrath is kind of, uh, you know, this cause and effect. So if you sin, you incur a punishment, but it's not God actively punishing you. It's just him letting you do what you want. Basically, like you reap what you sow. And then other people would say, no, I mean, you have Jesus warning about a wrath to come, Paul saying that Christ saves us from the wrath to come, like there's an active judgment that's coming that we need saved from, and uh, I think it's clear the three of us would would side on that that second piece of it, right? I but side with um, both, but I don't know if you want. You side with okay, no. <laughs> well, in Romans no, one, I mean, it, God gave them up to their natural desires. There is a sense in yeah, which yeah. He will let you experience the consequences of your decisions. You know, Isaiah three is. Uh, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt, so shall it be done to him. There is a sense of God's passive wrath, but that doesn't take away or dilute the very real reality that Paul talks about in Romans 2. There is an active wrath of God that is coming. Yeah. So there's a passive, there's passivity and activity in it. Yes. Can you transfer that to discipline? And so uh, the reason yeah. I'm asking that is, does God allow us to be disciplined passively? You reap totally. what you sow in the Christian life. 
uh, and does he discipline you actively? And if he does, um, does that, you, you know, now what kind of examples can you think of from your life where, where he's been passive and active in his discipline of us? Well, I think, you know, one that many people maybe have experienced at various points in their, in their life is sort of financial mismanagement. You know, if you, if you find yourself spending in a way that's, uh, you know, uh, overly aggressive given your income, you're going to experience natural uh, pinch points on that. You're not going to have the resources maybe to be as faithful in your giving as you'd like or, or something like that. Um, you know, so I think that's, a, that's just kind of a cause and effect. I mean, if you're not wise in the way you spend money, you're going to suffer the pinch point. But at the same time, you know, maybe I'm weird or something, but, but I kind of view even that as something that God uses and carefully brings to, our, to mind and, and points out to us so that even if it's a cause and effect, he's still actively in it. Um, I know there was a season in my life when I was really wrestling with a, uh, a decision I was having to make, and I thought I knew the right way, and uh, I knew the way I wanted to go, but God wouldn't allow me to do it, wouldn't open a door for me to do it, and at the time, I felt like God was raking me over the coals. Uh, and I was mad at him, and I was sort of resentful that he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do in my life. After the fact, when my heart got right, and I sort of submitted and humbled myself before him, uh, I realized that he had brought me through that process in order to teach me something that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And uh, he corrected a, uh, a prideful and ambitious heart uh, that instead of me dictating to him what I thought he ought to be doing in my life, I was much more ready to just follow him where he would lead. And I felt like, for me, that was a, an active case of God's discipline and correction. Yeah, I don't... It's hard to delineate you know, what's passive, what's active when it comes to discipline. Uh, I can just say that almost every time I've experienced God's discipline, uh, while it will manifest in symptoms of acting out in sin, whatever flavor or fashion, the reality is it's always tethered for me in not being in God's word consistently. And I'm mm. not sitting here trying to slap you on the hand and say, unless you have this morning quiet time, but I'm just telling you when I'm not hovering in the orbit of God's word, I find that my heart starts to uh, wander away from the Lord. And every time I do, I mean, God starts to feel far, even though I know he is not. I know that I'm forgiven by his grace, and yet I start to see my sin more, or worse, not see my sin more. I find myself trying to lean on my own understanding, uh, you know, without consulting the God of all wisdom that's always there to help and, and give me assistance. I, I find and feel myself grieving the Holy Spirit and, and walking in the flesh. And when you're in ministry, walking in the flesh is really dangerous because you start to lean on your own charisma or knowledge or bank of things and not just getting on my knees and saying, God, I'm a vessel, use me. Um, and sin sears the conscience with a hot iron. And then I, I, I stop feeling uh, the, the, the subtle pricks and whispers of the Holy Spirit sometimes, and, and the Lord sometimes has to wake me up. And I don't know if it's passive or active in the way that he shows his discipline, but I can promise you, I feel it in my soul and sometimes, you know, on my bottom, uh, so to speak. Because uh, when, you, when you unplug from the forgiveness of God, you run out of grace yourself. And you, yeah. you've disconnected yourself from the fount of living water. And I find myself going law on everyone. And so then sometimes I think the Lord kind of brings me back and just says, you want law? 
I'm like, no, no, sir. <laughs> you know, like looking down at the floor. And, and, and that's my question to you guys. After a disruption in our intimacy, when we do recognize the hand of the Lord in discipline, whether it's passive or active, how do we get reconciled to God? If, if he's already paid the penalty, how do we get reconciled? Yeah, well, I to get back in a relationship with God, it's it's simple. I mean, uh, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, um, we we have to repent. We have to admit to God what we've done and humble ourselves before Him. It's like David says in Psalm fifty-one: "It's not uh, sacrifices you desire, but a humble and a contrite heart." You know, and I think as soon as we come to our senses and realize that what we're going through is not what God would have us go through, that He wants to give us you know, an abundant life, a, a life full of joy and peace and, and the, the good things. Um, but we're experiencing the, uh, the negative side of life because of our own sin. So we go back to him and we admit to him, you know, you see what I've done, God. You see what a mess I've made in my life. Uh, restore me back to fellowship with you. Give me uh, a, a new, uh, you know, we always, the cliche is a new leaf, but that's not what we want. We want, we want a, a fresh relationship as if we'd never wandered to begin with. I'm so glad you brought up um, Psalm 51, because uh, it's not just uh, restoring a re- relationship with him, but uh, in verse 12, uh, David says, ask God to restore the joy of your salvation, speaking to God. Uh, that just two things to remember, that the salvation that we have is his. Yeah. So we're, we're reminded of grace. And then secondly, it should bring joy. So Dave, as, as I was listening to uh, kind of your, it, this is a very common scenario. I think everybody finds themselves in um, that kind of passive active combination of discipline starts with the little things. Um, what, what we're telling ourselves and what's the lie we're buying into is that um, we can find joy elsewhere. Um, and, and that this moment of prayer or scripture reading or fasting or whatever it is, uh, will not lead me to joy. There's something else that can bring me joy. Um, and, and so in, in some senses, I, th- I think for me, uh, the big indicator that I need repentance because, uh, the Lord has disciplined me is I have a joyless life. Um, the happiness just eludes me and I can't figure out why. Uh, and so in smack dab in the middle of Psalm 51 in this, this incredible um, picture of raw uh, repentance before God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, I love it. I do too, guys. You know, I, I run into, I, I love the delineation we mean, made between wrath, which is retributive and it's justice, and, and discipline, which is restorative and relationship and intimacy. Um, but I also feel like there's this equally dangerous ditch to fall into outside of just confusing those two categories. And I hear it all the time in the reform camp. And it's that saying that says, well, uh, God doesn't see me when he looks at me in my sin. He doesn't see me. He only sees Christ's righteousness over me. And I don't like that because I'm like, you're not invisible. You know, Romans five, we have, uh, this boldness to enter into the throne room because of the spirit to intercede in the place of the son to the father. But God sees our sin. And it affects our intimacy because we have a real relationship with him. It's why he disciplines those whom he loves. He would have nothing to discipline if he says, I can't see your sin. Um, And I I think it it can be dangerous to confuse the categories or conflate the categories. and, And seeing them as distinct can be helpful in our walk with God. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, this was... 
this is Luther's famous kind of description of the believer, that you're simultaneously, at the same time, justified before God in Christ, and yet still a sinner. Mm. And, and to lean too far into one or the other will lead you into, you know, two different types of issues, right? So if uh, you're not a sinner and you are uh, justified in the sense that you have no sin in you, and which, by the way, John would say you're a liar. Yeah. Um, then, then what's the sin that I need to repent from? So you, you have this kind of uh, prideful, cavalier attitude, and then grace becomes cheap. But to forget that you're justified in Christ before God and that you're only a sinner, uh, woe is me. You'll sink into despair. There's nothing yeah. you can do. And, and, and so there's, it's really difficult to stay on top of that horse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to. You must. Well, I think one of the things that gets us in trouble is that we go really quickly to the judicial categories that we've already talked about yes. of guilt and justification, which are the image of God as a judge and us as the, you know, the guilty and accused. Um, but we also need to remember the relational, not just the judicial, judicial, but the relational. And we've talked about sonship and that God is our father. And, you know, if, I don't know, I think when you fall into the one ditch where you, you just talk about justification, which is a beautiful, glorious doctrine, don't want to lose it. Um, sometimes you, you kind of, we can look down on people who talk about their personal relationship with Jesus. And um, that's something that I think we need to remember, that fundamentally, I mean, we're going to be with God for all eternity as his people, as a bride. You know, there is a, a relational dimension to our walk with the Lord that we can't forget. And I think that's the thing we're trying to hit on with, with discipline, is the, the, the relational aspect of our, our walk with God. And you know, I, I want to just say this sometimes what can seem like discipline is actually mercy it's actually yeah. for mm-hmm. our good you know what i mean and, and it's all for it's all mercy and it's all for our good he, he's making us he's conforming us he's shaping us he's growing us he wants to teach us what his will is and his character is and so we can be more like him but i'm even thinking about when god emancipates his people israel from their bondage in, in egypt uh, there was a quick shot to get to the promised land a, sh- a short route that they could have probably been there in, in not much time but i just remember what the lord says in exodus 13 you remember it's, it's like um when God lets them out, he, he's saying, let me take them the long way, lest they change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Yeah. That they're they going to see ready. these other, they're not ready. And so he's going to take them the long way and there's going to be tests along the way and they're not going to have water or food or, you know, there's going to be these things that they could feel like is God's discipline, but it's actually his mercy to train them up and build up their endurance. And, th- and this is a really important point. And because some people might hear in what you're saying, oh, so you're saying that they have to do something in order to have the relational status with God? No. No. They already have the relational status with God. They've already been redeemed. Their oppressor has already been defeated. Mm-hmm. And even though it seems the language Hebrews uses, the author of Hebrews uses in, in verse 12, even though discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, the whole point of that discipline we'll see in the end was for our good so that we could share in his holiness. And, and that kind of sharing can only come through a relational status that we've already secured or that's been secured for us. Amen. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing we have to remember is that God's purpose for us is bigger than our happiness and a peaceful and, and carefree life, you know, that he really wants to conform us into the image of his son 
And um, that's which includes his goal, our happiness, which does yes. include our happiness. But if, if it was only our happiness, then, you know, when we're in these periods totally. of judgment, we could go to him and say, hey, why, why are you letting me do this? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. Why would you allow me to go through this? But he knows that that process, the trial that he's going through, is refining our faith like gold and fire. And on the other side, we will be more like Jesus and we'll be more happy or we'll be joyful or peaceful or whatever um, because of it. I want to, uh, before we close, I just want to add the picture. I think Keller one time said something helpful, and I think this this would be helpful over all of this conversation of the picture based on a passage in Hebrews of Jesus as our lawyer, and we're on the stand, and he's defending us, and Satan is accusing us, and Jesus is ever pleading for us. He's making his case for us. And I remember Keller saying that sometimes I think believers imagine Jesus making his case out of uh, empathy because he knows what it's like. He says to the father, yes, Satan, they did do that. But father, you must know it's so hard to be a human. I was there. I experienced that temptation too. And he's making excuses for us. And I love what Keller said at one time. He said, no, he's saying you're right. They did it. Put it on my case. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the kind of intercession he's making. It's not excuses. He's saying, put it on me and they're hidden in me. I'll take the full punishment. And that's where the nature of the relationship changes. That's what we're talking about. Now we're under the realm of discipline, which is, I love you. I care about you. Uh, and I want to see you grow up to know my will and know what is good. And I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I want uh, to encourage you to join us for our next episode, episode four of Have You Ever Wondered? Well, we'll ask the question, and I know it may seem insane, but I think it's a good one. Did Satan give me a flat tire on the way to church?